Hello, thanks for joining us here at Animal Cafe, the place to meet with friends, bring your dogs, and have a great conversation with our guests. On Monday at animalcafe.co, you'll find a new interview with someone working to better the lives of animals. Then on Wednesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern, we meet in the chat room to go beyond the interview and get answers to your questions. I'm your host, Mary Haight. With me are fellow hosts, Eric Goblebecker, Dr. Lori Houston, and Edie Girolam, bloggers all. Check our website, animalcafe.co, for guest and host profiles. We hope to see you here every Wednesday. So sit back, get comfortable, and enjoy the show. Welcome to Animal Cafe. We're pleased to have with us today Dr. Justine Lee. Dr. Lee is a board-certified emergency critical care veterinary specialist. She's the Associate Director of Veterinary Services at the Pet Poison Helpline. Dr. Lee lectures throughout the world on the subject of emergency and critical care medicine. And she's recent recipient of the North American Veterinary Conference Small Animal Speaker of the Year Award for the year 2011. So we're really honored to have her with us today. She's here to talk to us today a little bit about pet poisonings. Welcome, Justine. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me on the show, Lori. You're very welcome. We're, we're very pleased to have you here. Let's start out by talking a little bit about the Pet Poison Helpline. Can you tell us a little bit about the helpline? Sure. Well, Pet Poison Helplines a 24-7 animal poison control, and we're based out of Minneapolis, Minnesota. And animal poison controls are unique. There's only two in the country, and we pride ourselves on being the most cost-effective. We're a one-time $35 fee per case versus our competitor, which is about $65. And unfortunately, animal poison controls don't receive any state or federal funding, so there is a small per-incident fee, um, but all the follow-up with both your veterinarian and the pet owner is completely free. Um, once we've established a case. And it's really, really helpful because a lot of times we can help pet owners decontaminate their pet at home or even find out if it's a poisoning issue or not, and it helps them avoid an emergency room visit to begin with. That is really important. That certainly can get pretty expensive for a pet owner if they have to take their pet to the, to the emergency hospital. So how can they get in touch with you, Justine? Great question. They can reach us at an 800 number. It's 800-213-6680. And they can always find us on their website for more information at petpoisonhelpline.com. All right. Um, let's talk about some of the most common poisonings you see, Justine. Are there some that you see more often than others there? In fact, we're actually quite seasonal. Even though we work for all of North America, spring and summer is actually our busiest time of the year. And we just actually passed one of our busiest holidays for chocolate poisoning, and that's because of Easter. And during the week of Easter, we see an increase in chocolate calls by over 190%, so almost 200% increase in chocolate calls that we get here. And so during certain holidays that involve chocolate, Halloween, Easter, Christmas, always important to make sure that you keep chocolate out of reach from your pets. Don't put it under the Christmas tree in a gift wrap package because obviously that's not dog proof. And we also, unfortunately, saw a lot of Easter lily poisoning in cats. Certain types of lilies, like Easter, day lilies, Asiatic lilies, or Japanese show lilies, are so deadly to cats. And a lot of pet owners aren't aware of that. Even one or two leaves, or even the pollen that gets on the fur of a cat and they groom it off, can kill a cat within a few days. And I'm quite passionate about educating people about it because 
the cat that I gave to my sister actually died of this. And it's, um, it's frustrating because florists aren't aware of this. And Easter lilies are the most common flower that's used in a bouquet. They're inexpensive, they're fragrant, they last a long time, and they're beautiful. So anytime you have a cat in the household, I don't recommend letting a bouquet into the house until you've uh, made sure that there's absolutely no Easter lilies in that bouquet at all. I'm so sorry to hear about your sister's cat, Justine. That's awful. My mother actually just got a cat. And that was one of the first things that I said to her, too. No Easter lilies this year, Mom. Good. Can we talk a little bit about uh, some of the springtime dangers? We're getting into the finally into our springtime season here uh, in in our little corner of the world here. Are there, other than the, the Easter lilies, are there other types of things that you see more commonly this time of year than other times of the year? Absolutely. Things like spring bulbs. Some people are, you know, a lot of people will um, start to plant them either in the fall or they'll get them in the spring. And it's the onion skin layer of the spring bulb that's actually quite poisonous to dogs and cats. The flower itself, the leaves itself aren't as much of an issue. It's that bulb that contains a lot of um, what we call emetic agents. It can make animals vomit quite profusely to the point where they can get dehydrated with large ingestions. And it's usually Labradors that eat, you know, 10 bulbs all at once. It can actually cause quite a severe poisoning where it can cause um, what we call central nervous system signs. So they can become um, developed tremors or it can actually cause toxicity to the heart where they develop heart arrhythmias. So we definitely want to keep spring bulbs out of reach. Another common one is as the weather warms up, people want to garden. And a lot of people have moved to organic fertilizers. I do caution people while it's not quote unquote poisonous per se, it can still be dangerous to your dog. And this is usually toxicity we see in dogs where people are using bone meal or blood meal. And it's basically crushed up cattle bone. Um, and so it smells really good and dogs are attracted to the smell and people use it as a source of nitrogen. So the dogs will dig up that area, eat a bunch of dirt, eat a, bu eat a bunch of the meal. And sometimes um, some gardeners will actually dust spring bulbs with this bone meal. And so now we see a double poisoning because now they get into the spring bulb also. There's some fertilizers um, and some rose plant foods that can be quite dangerous too. In general, when you use a, a fertilizer according to instructions and then you wait for it to rain and then you let your pet back onto that area, it's usually just a mild stomach irritant. But if you use concentrated types um, that are specific for rose insecticides, um, you definitely want to be careful and keep those out of reach of your pets. Some of those can be very, very dangerous to dogs. What about some of the lawn chemicals that we use, like the Scots uh, fertilizers and insecticides and so forth, or if we have a company like uh, Hemlon come out and treat our, our yards? Great question. You know, most of the times those signs look quite scary because they say, do not allow pets or children onto this area for two to three days. But those are actually really low concentration products most of the time. They're usually a low concentration pyrethrin. And if ingested directly out of the bag, so your dog eats several mouthfuls, yes, it can definitely cause an issue. And um, when it's diluted properly or when it's applied properly, um, it takes a large amount to result in any poisoning. We can't see a little bit of stomach upset. So always best to keep your pet off the property until the product is dried or it's been watered down. Um, but in general, we do get called about that quite a bit at Pet Poison Helpline. Um, but thankfully, it's usually self-limiting signs. Your your dog or cat may vomit once or twice. 
but usually not too big of a deal. Again, our biggest concern are the rose plant insecticides or the concentrated ones or the ones that need to be diluted. And when in doubt, I always recommend, if you're not sure, read the instructions carefully. You can always call your veterinarian or call Pet Poison Helpline for assistance also. And how about the uh, cocoa mulch? You hear a lot about that uh, this time of the year. How dangerous is, is the cocoa mulch? You know, that's a great question. Most smart dogs, and cats would never eat it, um, do not eat cocoa mulch. And so I can say that we think it's been overhyped. And the case that where an animal actually died from it, it was a Labrador here in Minnesota. They did find cocoa mulch on the autopsy in the stomach. But I can say that um, the clinical signs that that dog showed didn't, weren't completely consistent with cocoa mulch or chocolate poisoning. Um, the big thing to keep in mind is when you put it down, it does smell a little bit chocolatey. Once it rains, it removes a lot of the product. Yes, there is some theobromine in there. But it's not as dangerous as you keeping chocolate in your kitchen where your dog can get into it. Um, a dog has to eat a pretty significant amount before it's an issue. The one case where they did have a fatality from it, that dog um, supposedly seizured while he was swimming and acutely died. But it's a little bit unusual because they don't show seizures until um, really, really severe poisoning. And that dog would have shown other signs first of chocolate poisoning. It would have been vomiting chocolate. It would have had chocolate diarrhea. It would have been really hyper agitated. It would have a racing heart rate. It would have been tremoring. It wouldn't just all of a sudden acutely seizure. So, um, yes, it's a little bit of a concern. Not as dangerous as, you know, the media has overhyped it to be. Obviously, if you have a Labrador that likes to eat everything, you want to keep it out of reach. But most um, dogs are a bit more discriminating. They won't eat a huge amount of, of mulch. Sounds like maybe that dog uh, possibly had some concurrent health diseases going on there that were causing some of the symptoms, I think. Yeah, that's potentially what we worry about. Well, let's switch tracks here and, and talk about flea and tick medicines for a few minutes. That's a question that I get a lot in my practice. We're up here in Lyme country, so preventing ticks is an important deal for us. And I have a lot of clients that have pets with flea sensitivities. So keeping the fleas and ticks away is important. But a lot of clients worry about how toxic those products are and how dangerous they can be for their pets. Can you speak a little bit to that, Justine? Absolutely. Lori, that's a great question. You know, I would say that the bigger risk is getting Lyme disease or getting severe flea allergy dermatitis or developing plague or, you know, these rare infections you can see from flea bites or from tick bites. Um, we're based out of Minnesota. We're also in heavy tick-infested Lyme-infested area. I do think it's really important to use a preventative. Um, the safe thing to keep in mind and where we see errors happening is when people don't take the time to read the instructions carefully. And so we get called at Pet Poison Helpline so many times a day, especially in the spring and summer, when people put a small dog product on a big cat when it comes to fleas and ticks. And you absolutely cannot use flea and tick medication that's designed for dog on a cat. Cats have a different liver metabolism. They can't metabolize certain drugs. And the main ingredient in a lot of these topical flea and tick medications are very safe for dogs. They're what we call high concentration pyrethrins. And these are usually a 40 to 55% concentration in a lot of over-the-counter and even prescription of flea and tick medication. In dogs, um, it's very safe. It's not actually systemically absorbed. It stays in the skin. 
And this pyrethrin chemical is basically a chemical derivative from what's naturally found in the mum or chrysanthemum flower. So dogs handle it very, very well. There's um, a small subset of dogs that develop a tingling sensation called paresthesia from a high concentration pyrethrin. And that happens with prescription brands too. It's something where if you notice your dog scratching or rubbing, and then he gets the chemical on his foot from scratching that area, it's almost like their foot is tingling and dogs don't understand that. So if that does happen, contact your vet, contact an, um, Pet Poison Helpline, and we can give you instructions on how to bathe that product off appropriately. The key poisoning we see is when a cat gets exposed to that high concentration pyrethrin. That can be deadly. It can cause them to tremor and seizure. And cats can only tolerate really less than a 3% pyrethrin concentration. So these dog products are, you know, 10 times that amount, 15 times that amount. So if you have a dog that lives with cats and your cat grooms that dog and you just put that topical flea medication on and it rubs onto the cat or the cat licks it off, it can certainly be a poisoning issue. So I always tell people, make sure the product's completely dry, separate the dog and cat until that product's dried on the dog and never ever use dog products for flea and tip preventative on a cat without talking to your veterinarian. Um, again, very safe for dogs very dangerous for cats. Recently, um, there was a study that came out um, linking the flea and tick product Promaris with Pemphigus foliaceus. Um, do you think that that's a major concern? They're pulling that, that product off of the market soon. Um, but I have a clients that have been using the Promaris on a pretty regular basis, and they're a little bit concerned about their dogs. Of course, yeah. You know, with any drug, or anything out there, um, we do always worry about the rare risk of what we call an adverse event. And it's the way that the body reacts to certain drugs. Again, the chances are of uh, adverse event or adverse drug reaction are relatively rare, but I always tell people as veterinarians, we should report it to the company so we can track it and identify it. Um, I can say I do think it's um, a smart move for the FDA, which regulates all these drugs, or the EPA, which regulates a lot of chemicals, um, to regulate it appropriately so we can minimize the risk to our pets. Because of the, re the rare risk, but the risk of uh, pemphigus, I do support the decision that um, it shouldn't be used just because of this potential side effect. Because there are other safer alternatives out there for flea and tick medication or heartworm preventative. So again, when in doubt, always consult your veterinarian for the best product for your pet. Okay, thanks, Justine. Um, can we talk a little bit about how pet parents can prevent poisonings in general for their pets? Absolutely. Great question, Lori. Um, I always tell people, when in doubt, um, pre-program your cell phone with your veterinarian, your emergency veterinarian, and uh, Pet Poison Helpline's number in there. Because when you really need to call, you may be frantic, you might not be able to find that number. And again, Pet Poison Helpline's number is 800-213-6680. So again, pre-program it to your cell phone or post it on your refrigerator. The next thing that I think is really important are three main things. One, if you get a new puppy, learning how to adequately and appropriately crate train them and pet-proof the house appropriately. Get on your knees, crawl around the house. It lets you see a different perspective when you're lower on the ground and how much access to different things there are. So crate train your pet appropriately. Um, the next two things that I think are helpful is Pet Poison Helpline gets called daily when pet owners take their human medication, when they give their human medication to the pet by accident. And it's because they put their human prescription bottle next to their dog's prescription bottle. 
So when in doubt, store them in two separate areas of the kitchen. Your human medications in one area, your dog or cat's medications in a totally separate area, so you never have the chance of giving your pet's medication to you or your human medication to your pet. Take that extra five seconds to read the label and make sure it's the right drug. The next thing is keeping, um, a lot of people when they travel, they put all their medications in a Ziploc bag or they put them in those weekly pill holders. Well, if you shake those, they sound like a dog chew toy. You know, they're plastic, they make a noise. You always want to keep those out of reach too. And those are much more dangerous. It's usually um, geriatric people who are on a lot of heart medications and blood pressure medications and multivitamins. And the dog gets into seven days worth all at once. So keeping those out of reach also. And those are the best ways to pet proof. You can find some great hints on how to pet proof at our website. Again, petpoisonhelpline.com too for some more information. Yeah, we're going to be putting that website and the phone number up on, on uh, our site as well. So uh, our listeners will be able to find the information there too to, to get in contact with you, Justine. Um, one last question. I get a lot of people in my office um, that ask what they should do if their pet is poisoned. I get some of them that, for some reason, think that giving their pet milk after it's, it's eating something toxic might help, or they think maybe they should induce vomiting, and sometimes that's helpful, sometimes it's not. So can you give us some general guidelines uh, for pet owners to follow uh, if they think their, their pet has been poisoned, Justine? That's a great question. In fact, one of our biggest concerns is pet owners going to the Internet instead of directly going to the veterinarian or calling for appropriate medical advice. When in doubt, you never, ever want to use a home remedy that you found on the Internet. You don't want to give milk. You don't want to give vegetable oil or grease or any of these products. I've had owners who physically try to gag their dog by sticking their hand down that dog's throat. And that can cause so much injury to both the human and to the dog's mouth. Um, you never want to induce vomiting without talking to a veterinarian or an animal poison control. And the reason why is some um, products aren't poisonous and you may be making your pet worse by inducing vomiting. And some are easy to aspirate into the lungs and it can cause secondary complications if you induce vomiting at the wrong time. So again, never give a home remedy. Something as benign as milk um, can actually cause an issue if you give it at the wrong time with the wrong chemical. So before doing anything, you want to survey the area, calm down, remove your pet from the uh, area where the pills are so they can't get into any more. Once your pet's secured, then you want to remove the product. So gather up all the pills, gather up the container, put it into a Ziploc bag and bring it to the vet or have it on hand when you call Pet Poison Helpline. And then you want to just make sure that your pet is okay. So taking the steps, I call it the ABCs to make sure their airway, breathing, and circulation looks okay. So that they're resting comfortably. You know, if they're panting, you want to make sure they don't have a racing heart rate. And if you notice any signs at all, you definitely want to go to a veterinarian right away. And those are really the three simple steps. Calming down, moving your pet into a safe area, um, gathering up the poison, and then lastly, calling for assistance once you've, you've done the first three steps. Thank you very much, Justine. You shared some really valuable information, I think, today with us. Uh, so that's it for today's episode of Animal Cafe. We hope all of our listeners will join Dr. Lee and the Animal Cafe team in our chat cafe on Wednesday, May 4. Uh, Dr. Lee will be there to continue this discussion, and you'll have the opportunity to ask your own questions as well. 